Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Our Father, our King, thank you, Lord, for bringing us together once again. Lord, we bless your name, and we know that it is by your Spirit that you are raising us up and that you are causing us to uh, press in, that you are allowing us to um, uh, study afresh. We thank you that you have uh, preserved the words of the text, that you have uh, kept the book of Romans intact for us down through the centuries, even at the... uh, uh, even though we know that the, the enemy would have attacked uh, the letter and destroyed it and uh, uh, made it so that we no longer have these words, but not so. We thank you, Lord, that you have prevailed and that we can study your words as relevant for our lives today. Uh, continue to raise us up, Lord, as a light to those around us. Uh, we realize that um, the gospel message is as unpopular today as it was <laughs> When you walk to the earth, Yeshua, it's just the truth is not popular. And yet we have a mandate to take the gospel uh, from Jerusalem to the surrounding nations, to go into all the world, as it were, uh, that you told us in the book of Matthew, and preach the gospel. And so, Lord, we go with faith, we go with boldness, we go, most importantly, by the power of your Spirit. Um, Continue to forgive us where we fail you and to uh, give us a mind to understand, for these things are just plain difficult. And so I pray that you'll be with each and every student and enlarge their capacity to understand truth. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, B'Shem Yeshua, Omein. Well, welcome everyone to another adventure in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and this is Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Uh, let's date stamp a recording. Today is June the 17th for most of you. And we come to you week by week live via Skype on uh, Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to 7.45 Central Standard Time. So you're welcome to join us if you've got Skype. Um, For all the relevant details, I recommend you head on out to my website at uh, tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right on the homepage, you should find a link that says Galatians Commentary. Just click on that and follow all the information on the page to uh, either download the written notes, which are a little shy of 200 pages, or um, there should be a link there for the audio recordings that I make each week as well. Um, Also, if you are in the Denver area, specifically the Thornton area, Thornton, Colorado, you're invited to uh, come on out to our congregation, Kehilat Tunuvah, the Harvest, Pastor Mark McClellan being the head pastor. 
Uh, I'm a member there as well, although I'm a long-distance member, seeing as how I reside in South Korea. And so um, we'd love to have you out if you are there. Join us each Sabbath day. Okay, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with the commentary. Today is week six. Tonight is week 62 in our in our study. We've been kind of moving along week by week for over a year now. And as I mentioned, we just go kind of paragraph by paragraph and uh, uh, get whatever we can from the written notes. But first, let's start with some liturgy. For those of you who are with me live via Skype and you can see my screen, I've got Leviticus 18 pulled up tonight, and we're going to start in. Um, we're going to start looking at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 12, which is really, really technical. And I'm going to have to just tell you in advance that uh, this part of Galatians, we're going to really start getting. Um, difficult. Uh, it's It's been a historically difficult uh, section in Galatians that Paul's introducing to us. So for our uh, Old Testament passage, uh, the passage out of the Torah, I'm going to read Leviticus 18 because, because we're going to start using this uh, information in the, uh, in the notes. So let's read Leviticus 18. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5, just those first five verses. I'll read the English out of the ESV, and then I'll Scritch uh, screens and read the Hebrew for you as well, and then we'll turn to the book of Galatians chapter three, and we'll read uh, probably about five or six verses out of there in the English and in the Greek for you. Okay, all right, let's read Leviticus eighteen, starting at verse one, reads, "Quote, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived." And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. All right, let's pull up the the Leningrad Codex Hebrew. And read that for you as well. And we're going to use this in the commentary. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but we'll get we'll get to it eventually because Paul's going to quote from Leviticus 18, and these is the passages that he's going to be using. So let's go back and read the Hebrew of that as well. So this is Leviticus 18, uh, one through five, the same verses out of the Westminster Linograd Codex, the traditional Hebrew version that most of you are used to. And the Hebrew reads: uh, For those of you who are in my screen, this is starting right there in the upper right-hand corner. And it reads, uh, Uvhuchotechem lo telehu. And verse 4 et mishpotai taasu ve et huchotai tishmeru la lachet bahem ani adonai elohechem. And the final pasuk, verse 5 Ushmartem et huchotai ve et mishpotai asher ya ase atem ha adam vachai bahem ani adonai. Okay. Now let's turn to the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, uh, whatever you're used to calling it there. Turning over to Galatians 3, 
Uh, and jumping down to verse, let's start in verse 9 and go down through verse 14 again. This is the section that I mentioned earlier that has this careful little chiastic structure built into it, the, 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 the verses that we're going to be reading. And we're going to see that again tonight. So let's read the English again. ESV from Galatians 3, starting in verse 9 through verse 14, reads this way, quote, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on works of law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for... And here's our, our first quote from the Tanakh, right? This is, of course, uh, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And then verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather. And now we have another quote from the Tanakh. The one who does them shall live by them. Does that sound familiar? Well, of course it should, because that's what I just read. That's out of Leviticus 18. And verse 5. And then verse 13 continues, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, by becoming cursed for us. For it is written, and don't you love how Paul just brings in quote after quote from the Tanakh? Here we have another one. This time it's from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Quote, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. End quote. And then the final Pasuk, verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, let's go back and read from the... Let's read from the... SBLGNT, the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, Greek New Testament, Society of Bible Literature, the SBL. And this one I like because it includes all the variants, the, the places where the, the, uh, the textual variants that show up, like in the different Greek versions. This one actually just smashes all of them together so that we get all of them. All right, let's jump down to verse uh, 9 again. And for those of you who are in the live class with me. I'm starting right where I just highlighted this. Remember, Greek reads right, uh, left to right, just like uh, English does. So verse 9 starts out, Hostai oi ek pistios yulogunti sunto pisto abraham. Verse 10, Hosoi gar ex ergonamu eisen hupa kataran eisen gegraptai gar hati epikataratas pas hos uk emene pasentois gegramenois Ento biblio tu namu tu poies auta. Verse 11. Hati de en namo, udes dikai utai, para totheo de lon. Hati ho dikaias ek pistios zesitai. Verse 12. Ho de namas uk esten ek pistios al, uh, for, or rather, uh, ho poies auta zesitai in autois. That's where he just said, the man who does these things shall live by them. Verse 13, Christas hemas exagorison ek teis katara, uh, yes, teis kataras tunamu genamanas huper hemon katara hati gegraptai epikataratas pas ha kremamanas epikatsulu. And the final verse, verse 14, hina eis ta ethne eulogia to Abraham genetai in Christo Jesu hina te epangelian tu penumatas labomen dia tes pistios. Okay, that'll be our Greek and our Hebrew for tonight. And I hope you're enjoying the liturgy as much as I am. Let's turn now to the study. For those of you who have been able to follow along with the written notes for me or with me, 
we are using the PDF version, so we are on the... We're right around the middle of page 116, which puts us, like I said, right in the commentary on chapter 3, verse 12. And we're going to start looking at this verse tonight. And we're not going to hit the whole verse. Um, really, as you're going to see, we're only going to really be able to, in the time we have, to be able to hit about half the verse. And what I'm going to do for us tonight is I'm going to really try and stick close to my written commentary as much as possible because I think it is self-explanatory. I get myself in trouble by reading a verse and then just stopping and elaborating and then I never really get through a lot of the written commentary and it takes so long, right? So let's see if I can change that. All right, let's read. Galatians 3.12, here's what I have to say. First, I quote the passage and this is the, the, the quotations are all from the ESV, by the way. It reads again, quote, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. All right, here's where my commentary starts. Buckle in, because it's going to take me a bit longer than usual to explain this particular verse within the context of this chapter. Are you ready? Here we go. Here's what my commentary has to say. This verse, I say in my commentary, forms the second of the innermost two points of the six-part chiasmus by linking together the word live, which was found in Galatians 3.11 and Galatians 12. So we got this word live. I just I do have to stop and explain again. Chiasmus is just kind of this literary structure that, you, that basically forms a natural outline or a, or, or a kind of a, um, a focusing feature, a focal point in the text. It, it pulls together words uh, on the outside and in kind of a mirror fashion forces you to focus on whatever's in the middle of the point, kind of a a, a, a peak, a, a fulcrum, a um, uh, what's the word, a zenith, as it were. So if you look on my commentary, you see that I've got this little outline-looking thing going on. There's an arrow that indicates where this verse falls in my little six-part chiasmus. So for point A at the on the outside, we've got Abraham, and the verse is Galatians three nine. And then as we move our way inwards kind of a, kind of an indent to the right. We've got point B which is the word curse in the English. And these by all the by the way also match the the Greek words abram and uh curse. I can't remember what the the, the Greek word is for curse there, but I'd I'd have to look it up. Um Galatians 3:10 is where we find the word curse. And then we indent again towards the right and we've got the letter C which is the word live, which corresponds to Galatians 3:11. And then directly under that, we've got C again, point C, which is the word live. And now we got Galatians 3.12, which is the verse we're going to look at today. And then as we move our indentation back out towards the left, we got the point B, which corresponds to curse again, which is Galatians 3.13. And then finally, as we move the indentation back out to the left one more time, we go back to point A for Abraham, which is in Galatians 3.14. So between the one, two, three, four, five, six points of the chiasm, uh, points A from Galatians 3.19 and 3.14 match, which is the word Abraham, points B, which is Galatians 3.10 and Galatians 3.13 match, which is the word curse, and point C, which is the word live from Galatians 3.11 and 3.12 match. And that's how the chiasm is formed. Make sense, everyone? All right, you can try this on your own, by the way. You can just do a Google search for the word chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M or C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S, and put the word Galatians after it, hit enter, and you'll see that these are all over the place. I think they're kind of neat. All right, let's read my commentary near the bottom of page one, seven, uh, 116. 
Like the previous verse before it, this verse is also made up of two clauses. Um, and it's separated by a Greek conjunction. So we got two parts of the verse. But this time the conjunction is al. And al is usually translated as rather or on the contrary, but instead. So it's kind of a, a, a contrastive word. And I say in my commentary uh, that even though the conjunctions of these two verses are different in the Greek, um, I believe they're both essentially functioning in the same manner. Um, that is, like Galatians 3.11 that, that we studied previously, the conjunction here likely introduces the supporting clause, since the two clauses function as thesis and proof text, the two sides of the verse. So like Galatians 3.11, what I'm going to do is we're going to study each clause one at a time. We'll start in one part of the verse, and then we'll do it the other half. And I think tonight uh, we'll only get to the first clause, which is um, the law is not of faith. So... Uh, we'll hit that first clause, and then next week we'll deal with the one who does them shall live by them. At least I think that's what I'm going to do. All right, let's see what we got to do. By the way, I want to apologize up front uh, for those of you who are in my class. If you hear any coughing in the live class, uh, it's because i am still got this very little, very faint tickle in my throat from a few weeks back of being sick. And it just takes weeks for this little tickle to go away. So <clears throat> I apologize up front. If I cough, I'll try to pull the microphone away from my uh, head really quick, okay? All right. Top of page 117, first clause, which reads, quote, the law is not based on faith, or the law is not of faith, end quote. All right, at first blush, in my opinion, a surface reading of this first clause seems to have Paul simply and tersely stating that the Torah has nothing to do with faith, right? Quote, the law is not of faith, or, quote, the law is not based on faith, end quote. Indeed, as I say in my commentary, this is essentially how... The first clause is translated in a few well-known Bible versions. If you look at footnote number 114 in my notes, you'll see that the law is not of faith or the law is not based on faith, uh, something like that. This is basically how the NIV, uh, the BSB, the HCSB, the ISV, the NET, the DBT, and the WEY, they all translate the verse something along those lines that the law is not of faith or the law is not based on faith or something like that. But I say in my commentary in a challenging way, does Paul truly believe that God's written Torah was unrelated to genuine faith? Is that really how we're to understand the first clause? Are law and faith mutually exclusive concepts like I read about in many Christian commentaries today? Do law and faith regularly teach or belong to two different, uh, two distinctly different historical realms? Uh, you can hear this word dispensation in there if, you've, if you're familiar with any amount of Christian theology today. That speaks of dispensations, dispensationalism. It says that law and faith belong to two different historical realms and they, they're not joined, they, they're diametrically opposed as it were. So, I say in my commentary, we already know that Paul believes that a primary function of the law was to point men to Christ. We know that this is his view, for indeed he's actually going to explicitly tell us so later on. He gives this little analogy of, of the law being a, a schoolmaster leading us, like a schoolboy, a tutor, leading us, as it were, by the hand to the Messiah. So we know that that is a primary function of the law. Given that reality... Right, that that the the law functions as a schoolmaster to take us to the Messiah. I say that shouldn't it stand a reason that an unsaved man, read here as a Jewish man in Paul's day, that your average unsaved man earnestly seeking the promised Messiah, 
and yet following the law like any good upstanding Jew in Paul's day would have done, he must also demonstrate a measure of faith in God and his word in order to eventually find Christ within the pages of law, right? Doesn't that make sense? In other words, how can we really say that the law is not of faith? How can we really say that the that law and faithfulness or law and faith are two different terms? Doesn't the man who seeks the, the Messiah within the pages of the law, isn't he really, until he encounters the Messiah, isn't he really exercising uh, what we might call a measure of faith, a, 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 a prevenient grace, if you want to use the, the Armenian term? So, um, uh, I say that in my commentary, I think it makes no sense for then for Paul to be setting up a dichotomy, a, a strong uh, difference between law and faith, since clearly the Tanakh demonstrates that God expects genuine faith to be a vital component of the fabric of the social communities of his law-keeping children. I go on to say that to be sure, faithfulness and law-breaking, right, the opposite of faith, faithlessness, I should say, faithlessness and law-breaking, the opposite of faithfulness and faith, faithlessness and law-breaking are really what got Israel in hot water time and time again, if you read through the Old Testament. And what happened, it prompted God to punish and eventually exile them from their land, right? They get kicked out twice. Israel got kicked out in the 700s and, and Judah got kicked out in the 500s. And so time and time again, it was faithlessness and law-breaking that caused um, God to do what he had to do. So I don't think that Paul is saying here that the Torah is not based on faith, meaning the law and faith are mutually exclusive concepts. I don't think that's what's going on. So I don't think that that can be what the Apostle is conveying here. I think we need to look beyond a surface reading of the phrase, the law is not based on faith or the law is not on faith. I think we need to go beyond the surface and let context dictate the proper interpretation of law in this passage. Now, remember, I, I, I remind you here in my uh, commentary that the Greek word namos is the word for law. And uh, whenever you read namos in Paul, I can just tell you right now that you're going to do yourself a disservice if you just automatically assume that the word namos refers to written law. Quite naturally, in Paul's day, the word namos could refer to written law, could be referred to, referring to oral law, could refer to Greek law could refer to the law in principle, could refer to moral principles, it could refer to this very technical term works of the law, sometimes it could be shorthand. Uh, so, you know, it could refer to also shorthand for um, punishment of the law or what we might say curse of the law. Sometimes Paul just uses the word law to refer in a positive sense to Torah, to, to Mosaic law, and sometimes in a negative sense such as either works of the law or curse of the law or something like that. So we really have to gain our understanding of the law from the word context. All right, give me a moment. Let me just check Skype because it looked like maybe another student might have jumped in. Uh, yeah, it looks like we got somebody. And for those of you who have just recently joined, just want to remind you to keep your microphones muted. And if you can hear me and everything's okay, you're welcome to just chat and say, yes, I can hear you and I can see your screen. All right, something like that. Okay. Also, uh, for those of you who are with me in the live study, if you're on your computer, you should be able to see my screen, but if you're on, say, a smartphone or iPhone or Android phone or whatever, you may not always be able to see the screen, but at least you can hear me, and that's what's most important. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, in my commentary, let's go on. We're about in the middle of page 117 here. Therefore, in my estimation, in order to correctly understand the first clause of Galatians 3.12, uh, where the law is not based on faith or something like that, 
I think we really allow, we must allow for the context of the letter itself, as well as the what I call the socio-religious emergency, which occasioned the letter to guide our interpretation of the word law. In other words, why did Paul even have to write the letter to the Galatians? What's the socio-religious setting of the book itself? And then, what is the context of it? And so I say, because of this, uh, because I think this is a carefully reasoned argument, in other words, uh, to use this phrase that I've been playing with all week, idiosyncratic, because I think Galatians is a highly technical book, I believe that there are two strong nuances for the way that Paul is using the word law in this first clause when he says the law is not based on faith. Okay, so let's see what we got. In my commentary, I describe these as nuance one and nuance two. And in reality, what I'm trying to say to the students who are listening is that I'm not entirely sure which one he means. I think he could mean one or the other or both. And perhaps there's even a third nuance. Uh, I'm, I'm entirely sure that I haven't cornered the market on the understanding of the book of Galatians just yet. So if you'll allow me to just share with you the two nuances that I caught when I was studying this uh, section right here in Paul. Okay, here we go. Nuance one for the laws not of faith. In other words, the first clause of Galatians 3.12. Quote, in my commentary, I say it this way. As with Dunn's point, that's James D.G. Dunn, as with the point that he made about Galatians 3.11 above, Paul may simply be using namas, the word law, once again as shorthand to describe the position of the influencers, the Galatian uh, Judaizers that Christians call them. Uh, in other words, works of law. So he might be using the word law here is shorthand for works of law, viz, quote, legally recognized Jewish identity that leads to law keeping and covenant maintenance, end quote. That's my uh, meaty paraphrase of the, of the word works of law in Paul. And, and I think that's why he, what he could be using here. This would make it similar to how he just used namas in the previous verse, making it read something like this. So if that's the nuance, then we could read the first clause of Galatians 3.12 like this. Quote, this is my own paraphrase, quote, but works of the law do not count as faith, end quote. And I think that would make sense theologically, right? It, it, that, I think that's one of the nuances. What is more, I go on to say, even if we did not choose to translate namas as shorthand, opting instead for the law proper, like one of my um, uh, long-standing students is fond of, of reminding me, um, who I think is listening right now, I'm quite sure he is, he would remind me that perhaps Paul's talking about the law proper. We would still have to agree that Paul opposes the position that genuine covenant membership follows from ethnically motivated law-keeping, the way his opponents believed, um, I'm sorry, let me read that sentence again. What is more, even if we did not choose to translate namos as shorthand, like I just did a moment ago, opting instead for the law proper, like my uh, a good friend does, we would still have to agree that Paul opposes the position that genuine covenant membership follows from ethnically motivated law keeping, that is, the way his opponents believed. Rather, in Paul's mind, uh, law keeping is the inevitable fruit of, of being a genuine covenant member as secured by faith in Israel's Messiah, Yeshua. In other words, uh, my, my good friend and uh, fellow uh, Bible student, Torah student, would also agree with me that if the law in general can't save you, then what makes you think that a, a, a piece removed from the law, i.e. the works of the law, what makes you think that that's going to bring genuine righteousness or uh, forensic righteousness, i.e. 
salvation? What makes you think that's going to tip God's hand in your favor and make you uh, be, uh, be declared as righteous? If it's not the law in, in, in mass, then what makes you think a smaller part? It's kind of a argument from the lesser to the greater or the greater to the lesser, the, uh, the whole kind of call of a chumer argument going on. And in that sense, I think Paul could be using this word that way. So, what, what, as I say in my commentary, this he's going to prove by bringing in the quote from Leviticus, the idea that, that um, uh, uh, law-keeping doesn't lead to genuine covenant membership. Um, Paul's going to prove this by bringing in the quote from Leviticus, which we just read in our, in our liturgy. And um, the, the, the quote from Leviticus, as we found out, conveniently includes the term live, L-I-V-E, just like the Habakkuk verse, Habakkuk 2.4, that we um, quoted in uh, Galatians 2, uh, 3.11 last week. Right? They both have the word live, which is really kind of neat. The man who does these things shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. And the just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. So they both have this this word zesatai in them, this Greek word zesatai, which translates into the uh, English as live. All right, as I keep reading my commentary, as contextually sound as making law into works of the law seems to stand by itself, like I say in nuance one, I actually don't think that this is the exclusive nuance of the word law here. Additionally, I think he also includes nuance too. All right, so there's two different nuances. Let's read the second nuance. Here's what I think might also be going on here. Nuance two in my commentary. And I think what we'll do is we're just going to read nuance two. And in my commentary, we're going to stop um, with the first clause. So we're going to read down to the top of page 119. So we'll just read... Uh, just one more page here, and then we'll close down the commentary. All right, so if it's not nuance one, where where Paul might be meaning works of the law when he says the law, the law is not of faith, maybe he's meaning works of the law is not of faith. If that's not the case, then what do I mean by the second nuance? All right, this time I'm gonna it's going to get really technical, so please buckle in, and I'll try and go slow and methodically so that I don't lose anyone. Nuance two. Here's what I have to say in my commentary. We know that works of the law is likely the best way to translate law in 3.11. I say that because of the way he says that it's the law that doesn't bring justification and the way that he's already uh, said that no one is justified by the works of the law in chapter 2, verse uh, 16. In fact, he uses it, says that three times in one verse, that, that no one's justified by works of the law. So it's, it's, it's a very good indication that he's using the word law that way in 3.11, even if I'm wrong. We also know that verse 11 and 12 are closely related, right? Because he's, he's, he's linking these two passages. Paul's linking Habakkuk 2.4 with Leviticus um, 18 verse 5 in some very closely reasoned way. And so our, our, our goal here is to try and figure out how they're linked together. So we know they're closely related. So if the nuance were to focus on law here in 3.12, if it were to focus on law and leave out the works of the part, instead of just works of law, what if it's just law, like my good friend is fond of saying, then what exactly would Paul mean by saying, quote, the law is not based on faith, or, quote, the law is not of faith, end quote. Out of the ESV, the law is not of faith, or those other versions, the law is not based on faith. What, what exactly would he mean if he doesn't mean the works of the law is not based on faith, or the works of the law is not of faith? How is Paul using quote-unquote law here, and precisely why cannot the law come sequentially after faith, if indeed that's what he means by the law is not of faith? 
Let's see if the Greek helps us out. We're going to find out that the Greek helps a little bit, but in the end, the Greek doesn't really... Uh, it's not really what we might call an open and closed case. It's not a slam dunk, even even by examining the Greek. But it helps. The Greek has hode namas uk estinek pistios. And uh, literally, if we were to take each one of those words, ho means the, de means moreover, namas means law, uk means not, estin means uh, is, um, yeah, estin means is, uh, ek means out of, and pistios means faith. So the Greek literally meaning a wooden translation word for word in the same syntactical order that we might read it in the Greek would literally say, the moreover law not is out of faith, end quote. So what we learn from looking at the Greek here is that the Greek preposition ek is, uh, according to helpsbible.com, it's defined as having, quote, a two-layered meaning. And the two layers are, quote, out from and to. So we got both of these layers kind of going on in this very rich, simple little two-letter Greek word, ek. And um, helpsbible.com says that this two-layered meaning ends up turning the, the preposition to a meaning of outcome-oriented. That is, it's out of the depths of the source and extending to its impact on the object that it's affecting, end quote. And the uh, footnote to number 115 shows that I pulled that from actually biblehub.com, uh, the Greek word there of ek. So um, this little word ek is a very meaty word if you think about it. It's just these two letters. It looks like the letter E and the letter K uh, in English if you're not used to reading Greek. But that, that's, that's basically the, the, the word ek and, the, and what it conveys. So does this give us any clue as to what Paul's meaning when he says the, the moral law is not out of faith or it doesn't, out, it doesn't come out from extend to faith? Is, is, how can we kind of tear that verse apart and make some sense out of it? All right, here's what I go on to say in my commentary. We already know from Galatians 2, 16 and 21 that we read, what, months ago, as well as 3.11 that we read last week, that justification does not flow out of works of the law. We know that because Paul says it explicitly. Justification, that is, say, salvation or forensic righteousness, whatever you want to call it there. Justification or salvation, if we want to use Christianese. Salvation does not flow out of works of the law, right? Works of the law does not lead to salvation or salvation itself is not a product or a byproduct of the works of the law. In other words, to use that sequence, one does not move from the works of law into a position of salvation. We know that's true because Paul tells us in those three passages, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.21, and Galatians 3.11. And in 3.11, he just used the word law there. So we know that this is what this is not what law, what what Paul means that works of the law lead to justification. But now Paul wants us to also make sure that we know that law does not flow out of faith. What in the world does he mean? Why wouldn't law flow from faith? And what does this position say about the theology and the message of the influencers? Okay, so it's helpful. Let me just pause for a moment. It's helpful for us to remember that the theology of, of the influencers, what the Christians call the Judaizers, but when, in my opinion is a misunderstanding of that word Judaizer, and not, not to mention that it's kind of a, a, a pejorative Jewish term, almost like a racial slur to Jews themselves. But So I, I prefer the word influencer or maybe the word agitators, which you might read in some commentaries these days, the agitators or the detractors. 
Paul's opponents, right? The people that he's arguing against or trying to defend uh, the true gospel against. The people who had it wrong, if you want to remember that way. Their theology primarily focused on this idea that genuine covenant membership within the people group known as Israel was uh, primarily marked out by the um, sign known as circumcision. So the, the people of Paul's day who were the unbelieving Jews, or even some of the believing Jews who were still primarily focused on, on a Jewish-only Israel, they were really towing the, the standard party line that all Jews and only Jews are covenant members, and circumcision for males is what marked out and separated uh, those who are covenant members from those who are not covenant members. Thus, in Paul's day, if you wanted to be counted among the righteous covenant members in Israel, you had to cross over this barrier of ethnicity if you were a Gentile. You had to cross over this barrier of ethnicity and join the ethnic, ethnocentric Jewish exclusive group known as Israel. And once you became a member of this group, it was within that uh, social setting that you could be, begin to walk out the Torah and to live your life as a righteous covenant member. In other words, ethnicity came first and then uh, Torah maintenance or Torah obedience came second. It was these two sides of one coin known as works of the law or circumcision, if we could use the shorthand word. Um, this was their position. So for Paul to say that the law is not of faith must in some way be attacking that position that genuine covenant membership or genuine righteousness or genuine salvation, if we want to use the 21st century Christian term, genuine salvation does not flow or spring from one's ethnicity, or even from keeping the law, for that matter. In other words, merit theology is, is a false um, belief system. Good works will not save you. It never has saved one anyone, nor will it ever save anyone. Morality does not save you. Good works do not, does not save you. Keeping the law does not save you. In a, in a word, legalism does not lead to salvation. So in some way, what we're really trying to do, the burden of us as translators and as commentators and Bible students is really quite simple. We have to take this phrase, the law is not of faith, and somehow make it mean legalism does not lead to salvation. Okay, so that's basically what we're, what we're working towards. So we kind of already know the, the answer to what Paul means. We just have to kind of figure out how is he using the Greek terms? How is, he, how is the nuance um, put together within the context of Galatians here? To, to come, how does he come up with that out of these, this Greek phrase? Let's keep reading my commentary. I believe a significant clue to understanding uh, what Paul means here when he says the law is not a faith is in remembering that in Hebrew, faith and faithfulness are rooted in the same word. So recall what we learned in the summary section way long time ago in my commentary. The origin words for faith and faithfulness share a noun and a verb relationship in both the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, in other words, there's a noun version of faith and there's a verbal ver version of faith that uh, doesn't show up in the English. So we can say, I have faith, but we don't say, I faithed. You know, yesterday I faithed, or as I was faithing yesterday, I, you know, X, Y, Z. We don't speak that way in English. We don't turn faith into a verb uh, the way it can do so in in the, in the cognates of the Hebrew as well as the Greek. Usually what we do is we switch over to a different word, believing. So we say belief and we say believing uh, instead of faith and faithing or something to that effect. So we just have to remind ourselves that in the, in the Hebrew as well as in the Greek, we've got two words. We got, and they're both close related to one another. 
as well as the two nouns that capture the idea of something that is static as well as something that is in motion. We got the word faith, which, which for the most part in English describes kind of a static a concept, a, a, an ideal, something that doesn't move, something that's grounded, something that's unmovable, unshakable. When we talk about our faith in Messiah, our faith in God, it's something that we're we're conveying in the English that is unmovable, unshakable. It doesn't waver, doesn't float around, uh, go up and down uh, with the waves of the sea, etc., etc. But when we talk about faithfulness, sometimes we describe something that that carries the idea of an ongoing action and something that that uh, conveys a sense of, of a day-by-day um, uh, motion, something that's moving, it's not necessarily static, even though they're both nouns. Faith and faithfulness are both nouns. You guys following me so far? All right. So the first thing that we have to remind ourselves is that faith and faithfulness share the same noun and verb relationship in Hebrew and in Greek. And I think this is going to help for the verse because as such, the Habakkuk 2.4 passage could just as easily have been understood by the Judaisms of Paul's day as, quote, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, right? Instead of the righteous shall live by his faith. And what's interesting is that if you if you take, as I digress for just for a split second, if you take the three different versions of Habakkuk 2.4 that are, that are primarily available today to us today, we've got the Hebrew, which is the Masoretic text, the MT. Then we have the LXX, which would be the Greek Septuagint of that same passage. And then we have Paul's quote of it, his rendering of it here in the book of Galatians. So we've got kind of three basic versions of Habakkuk 2.4. In the Hebrew text, it says the righteous shall live by his faith, right? Taking the Hebrew word emunato as his faith, as a genitive. Uh, the the, the re- Hebrew word there, emet, or emunah, has the uh, the suffix attached to, which turns it into a genitive as um, uh, um Yes, turns it into the, uh, the, the the genitive, the possessive sense of his faith. So the righteous shall live by his faith. That's what the Hebrew says. But then it's funny that the, the, the LXX, the translation into Greek, actually turns it into uh, a personal possessive where instead of saying the righteous shall live by his faith, it actually has it pos- uh, a linking back to God, saying the righteous shall live by my faith. So isn't that interesting? The, the, the translators of the Septuagint Translated, they changed it from his faith into my faith, speaking of God. So the righteous shall live by my faith. And then when Paul quotes it in Galatians uh, 3.11, instead of opting for either his faith or my faith, he simply takes out the his and the my. He just says faith, the righteous shall live by faith, kind of turning it into an, a maxim, a kind of a, a, an idiom of sorts. And so he, it's almost like he doesn't want to jump into the fray and say that it's either his faith or my faith. He just says, the righteous live by faith. So I think that's kind of interesting. But knowing that uh, emunah in the Hebrew, the word faith, can also capture this idea of faithfulness, they're both nouns, then we could translate it, the righteous to live by his faithfulness. It's still faithfulness, and it's still his, but now it's faithfulness instead of faith. All right, so let's just imagine for a moment that this were the case. If this were the case, that the Judaisms of Paul's day were really reading Habakkuk 2.4 as the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, instead of just merely faith, like we were re- used to reading it in, in, uh, Ro- in um, uh, uh, Galatians 3.11 as well as Romans 1.17, right? The, the just shall live by faith, the famous quote from uh, uh, Martin Luther. Instead of reading it that way, what if we were to read the verses, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, or just the righteous shall live by faithfulness? We don't even have to have the genitive there. 
If that were the case, then verse 12 here in Galatians should also imply faithless, which is the Greek word pistis, uh, when it uses the word faith, which is the word pistios. And I think I've got a typo there. I really want, wanted to say that it should imply believing, which is the Greek word. Um, instead of pistis, I want to, start, I want to really say uh, pistuo. So pistis is a noun, and it means faithfulness. And pistios is the word faith, it's also a noun, and I really wanted to say that uh, it would imply the verbal form of the, the, the root word pistis, and so I really wanted to say in my commentary that it would imply believing, and then I should have written the Greek word uh, pistuo. But nevertheless, let's just stick with, for now, I'll, that's what my commentary says. So here's the point I'm trying to make without losing all of you. If the Judaisms of Paul's day were reading the Greek, I'm sorry, reading the Hebrew of the of um, Habakkuk as the just to live by his faithfulness, then they would also understand Paul to be saying, or when he read Habakkuk, they would say it as uh, the righteous, uh, the law is not of faithfulness. So this is what we would end up with. The law is not out of faithfulness. The law is not out of faithfulness. Instead of the law is not out of faith. Well, let's stop and think about that for a moment. The law is not out of faithfulness. Well, that kind of makes perfect sense in the light of Leviticus 18.5. Because it kind of puts things backwards if we say that the law is, is, is not out of faithfulness. If the law were out of faithfulness, well then, uh, Leviticus 18.5 is really very confusing. Because in that verse, it is right living, right? It is right living, in essence, faithfulness to the Torah. Uh, in other words, if a person does them, it's, it's right living that flows from, the uh, that flows from an existing covenant member's commitment to Hashem and to his law. Not the other way around. In other words, the law does not flow from faithfulness. All right, many of you are probably just, your head's spinning, you're thinking, gosh, Ariel, isn't it just easier to, to understand that Paul was trying to combat legalism? And he's really just trying to get them to understand that you can't work your way into heaven and that no matter what amount of Torah you try to keep, God will not leverage it in your favor in terms of forensic righteousness. To that sense, to that end, yes, that is simply what the verse is trying to say. But it's fair enough that we have to at least give the Jewish um, detractors of Paul's day a fair treatment. How could they, if it's so, e in other words, what I'm trying to say is this, if it's so easy for us as Christians, 21st century Christians, to understand that the law is not of faith, then how come they couldn't understand it? And they had a better handle on Hebrew and Greek than we do. See what I'm saying? So it's fair that we have to really get into this nuanced discussion of these Greek words, because how could they so easily misunderstand it if, in fact... From our perspective, it's easy to rightly understand. In other words, it's kind of patronizing to say, what, you guys don't get it? Are you daft? Are you dumb? Are you stupid? And yet in reality, they were probably closer to a correct understanding of Habakkuk 2.4 and Galatians 3.11 than we are today, uh, if not for the fact that they have a, had, they, the Judaisms of Paul's day, had, and, and, and many Jewish people today still do, I have a better understanding of the Hebrew and the Greek than we do, your average Christian. So I think it's unfair for us to simplify the verse and to say, well, gosh, it's so simple to understand. Why can't they understand it? Even a two-year-old could understand it. I think we really do have to do justice by getting kind of technical with the verse because it's only fair to give them a fair uh, reading and, and give them the due process that they're uh, owed. So, um, so we got this idea of if, if the word means faithfulness instead of faith, then 
this would make sense for Paul to use it this way, you know, the law is not of faithfulness, because he's going to go on to quote Leviticus 18.5 in the second half of the verse, verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, verse 12. He's going to quote the, the second clause as his proof text that the law is not of faithfulness. So, what I say in my commentary, as I'm drawing my commentary close here, I'm going to opt for including nuance one in our background exegesis, that is based on the works of law and law in Galatians 3:10 and 11, right? I think the that the nuance of the first clause of 3:12 here does include this idea of works of the law. I think that nuance is there, but uh, like uh, my good friend uh, is fond of, of reminding me, I'm going to lean more heavily on nuance two here, where we have. The law is not a faith, meaning I'm not going to translate it as works of the law are not a faith. I'm going to lean more heavily on nuance two about where he means really the law in general uh, when interpreting and practically applying the first clause of this verse. And I'm doing that because of the the presence of Leviticus 18.5 as quoted in the second clause of Galatians 3.12. Did I lose anyone? I really hope I didn't. In other words... Normally, I would opt for keeping nuance one where he says the law is not a faith. I would I would probably still stick close to the works of law are not a faith, something like that. But because of the presence of Leviticus 18.5 as his proof text, I'm going to jump over into nuance two. All right, let me um, keep reading and read down just to the first half, uh, first part of page 119. We're almost done. Another clue... I say in my commentary, another clue to understanding what the first clause, quote, law does not proceed from faith, end quote, means, I think here's another clue, is in recalling that according to the biblical sequence of the two most significant covenants demonstrated by Abraham and Moshe, which would be Genesis to Deuteronomy, then Abraham represents, quote, faith, end quote, whereas Moses represents, quote, law, End quote. You guys understand what I mean? Sequentially, Abraham represents faith, right? Genesis fifteen six. The, the, it was he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Moses represents law or faithfulness, and we we could read that. We just understand that law is a covenant of of obedience, whereas faith is a covenant of believing, as it were. So, using this narrow example, where we follow these words in the same sequential order that they're given to us, not only historically, as well as in the Bible. In other words, Genesis comes before Deuteronomy, Abraham comes before Moses, faith comes before law, etc., etc. Using this narrow example to support one's theology, which is accurate, the word law here in this passage, right, L-A-W, quote-unquote, does in fact come sequentially after faith. You see what I mean? So this is a clue in understanding perhaps what Paul's means. So listen to me for a moment. In other words, in to, uh, to understand this, using that Greek word ek, out of, the law actually is of faith. If we take the word of, the, the, the preposition there, ek, to imply continues from, right? In that sequence, law sequentially continues from faith. Faith comes first, law comes second. And Perhaps Paul's detractors, if we look at it that way, right? This is where I say we've got to give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Perhaps Paul's detractors, the Judaizers, the influencers, perhaps they were banking on this very example themselves by teaching 
their own students that all those who belong to circumcised Abraham, that is, Jews and proselytes, all those who belong to Abraham are obligated to keep both the written law as well as the oral law that is attached to it. Following what I'm saying? So, I think that the detractors weren't as dumb as we, as we, as we make them out to be sometimes. They can clearly see that Genesis comes before Deuteronomy. They can clearly see that Abraham comes before Moses. So, I don't think it's so simple that they just, just absent-mindedly just suddenly were teaching that, hey, Moses comes before Abraham. Hey, uh, 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 law-keeping comes before faith. I don't think they were just so absent-mindedly teaching it. I think they were actually on to something, but they just, they just missed the zenith of it. So, let's, let's follow that for a moment. So, so uh, Abraham comes before Moses, which means in their mind, circumcised Jews and proselytes are obligated to keep both the written law as well as the oral law that is attached to that written law. So, on the top of page 119, I go on to say, in their minds, in the minds of the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, the law actually is of, that is, continue sequentially after faith. The law is of faith. And therefore, Gentiles who wish to be counted as righteous must be circumcised as well as keep the law. Does that sound familiar? Gentiles who wish to be righteous must first be circumcised and then second keep the law. Recall the words of the believing Pharisees in Acts 15, 5, quote, It is necessary to what? Step one, circumcise them, and two, order them to keep the law of Moses, end quote. Well, look at that. There it is right there. Circumcision first, keep the law of Moses second. And this is what the believing Pharisees were teaching. So if, if they were misunderstanding the true sequence, uh, how much more would we possibly misunderstand uh, really what's going on? I mean, these were believing Pharisees that were getting it wrong, and yet they were still believing that the law is of faith. And so here we have Paul saying the law is not of faith, and yet... It's it's quite natural to understand how they could how they could come to that conclusion, because in their minds the law is of faith. In other words, the law continues sequently after faith, using the word is of to fill in the meaning for that Greek word ek, which is flows from or out of, flowing towards. See what I'm saying? All right, so we're almost done. Stay with me. Just give me five or ten more minutes. So, we got Acts 15.5, believing Pharisees saying, it is necessary, speaking of the Gentiles, to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And yet we know today that that theology is wrong. We know that that theology is wrong, but we have to really ask ourselves, why is it wrong? So, let's keep reading. In my commentary, I say it this way. Paul is going to eventually challenge this dangerous theological view in Galatians 5.3 by warning the Galatian Christians, quote, and here's a quote, here's a lift from Galatians 5.3, quote, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law, end quote. So Paul's going to warn his disciples, his uh, students, the readers of his letter, he's going to be warning them again away from this theology that circumcision requires us to keep the law. And he's going to warn them that this is dangerous. And we're going to find out a little bit more why he thinks it's dangerous. But suffice to say for now, however, since the phrase, quote, the law is not of faith that we're reading about here in Galatians 3.12, since this phrase is specifically antithesis to Paul's use of Leviticus 18.5 here in Galatians 3.12, right? In other words, uh, these two 
um, these two clauses in Galatians 3.12 are opposite one another. The law is not of faith is one view, and, and the, the man who does them shall live by them is another view. And in Paul's mind, the supporting passage, the, 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 his, his proof text, is the right is in the right, it's the correct thing, and the, 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 the first clause is the wrong thing. In other words, that's the error, and he's going to correct the error by quoting the passage out of Leviticus 18.5. So we know that they are antithetical to one another. The law of faith is on one side of the argument, and um, uh, the man who does these things shall live by him is on the other side of the argument. And according to Paul, the proof text is the one that he wants his readers in, in Galatians to know is truth. So I say in my, pe in my uh, commentary, since the phrase the law of, is not of faith is specifically antithesis to Paul's use of, of uh, Leviticus 18.5 here in Galatians 3.12, and in the Leviticus passage, it is faithfulness that is in point of fact sequentially after, that is out of genuine faith, i.e. The, the one of faith who does them shall live by them in faithfulness, then the conclusion that we can reach for this part, is, just for this first clause, is that the influencer's accurate point that Abraham came before Moses and that this proves that Gentile proselytes are obligated to the works of the law for justification Right? It, it does prove that. They were accurate that Abraham came before Moses. We can't discount that. We've got to give them credit for that. And it actually proves that. And it also proves that Gentile proselytes are obligated to the works of the law for justification if that's, in fact, the uh, halakha that they're seeking. So um, to use the, the, biblical, the biblical passages that way, from their perspective, wasn't entirely wrong. It's just um, they're misunderstanding uh, what I, in my opinion, they're misunderstanding um, natural covenant membership with lasting covenant membership. But nevertheless, um, if that's the case, then it proves uh, it proves that they're. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me read that sentence again. Then the influencer's accurate point that Abraham came before Moses, and that this proves that Gentile proselytes are obligated to the works of the law for justification, nevertheless represents faulty theological reasoning due to the proofs that Paul has offered in the message of his larger context, which was begun in Galatians 2.15 above and continues up to Galatians 3.11 thus far. So Paul's trying to argue against this idea that ethnicity leads to genuine righteousness. That's Remember, that's one of Paul's central points, is that legalism does not lead to salvation. And we have to kind of keep that in mind as we're working through these two uh, passages. Paul's warnings about legalism, or about ethnicity, uh, believing that one's ethnicity is what uh, saves a person, Paul's warnings clearly demonstrate that the Torah, as rightly understood, rejects this restrictive misuse of its teachings. In other words, when I say restrictive, I mean the ethnic-driven form of Torah obedience, the ethnic-driven form of, of works, the ethnic-driven uh, preoccupation with the law. In other words, what I call works of the law. So, the Torah, as rightly understood rejects ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. It rejects legalism. It rejects nationalism. It rejects works-based righteousness. It, it rejects uh, merit theology, whatever you want to call it, right? Works-based righteousness. The, 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 when we rightly understand the Torah, the Torah's precepts, the Torah's laws, the Torah's commandments, then we, we then begin to understand, like Paul uh, and the rest of the uh, Messianic Jews after him, that 
that the, the God is not asking us to keep a set of laws so that we can be counted as righteous forensically. What God is asking of us is to have genuine faith, which leads into genuine works or genuine fruit, if you want to describe the works that way. So in closing, I simply say that this type of reasoning that we're talking about, um, um, I'm sorry, the reasoning that the, the, the uh, influencers were teaching their students supposedly promised to accomplish a right standing in the sight of Hashem based on nationalism. And basically... Uh, this is going to cover the uh, this first clause, the, the, the laws not based on faith. So in conclusion, uh, I just want to say this to the students who are listening. Don't simplistically think that these verses can be easily understood just because we now know what genuine faith is and we now know that true faith leads to Messiah. It's really un an unfair reading. It, it really doesn't give the, 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 um, the Jewish people of Paul's days credit for misunderstanding the way they did, because in fact, uh, even today's Judaism, today's Jewish people, today's Judaisms, they still misunderstand how genuine faith must be rooted in Messiah. And part of that is due to their blindness, right? We know that God is partially blind to them, Romans chapter 11, all over again. But um, partial hardening has come upon Israel until all is saved. But by the same token, it is also fair to say that Jewish people today correctly understand that Abraham comes before Moses. They know that. They know that Genesis comes before Deuteronomy. And so it's 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 not so it's not really fair to them to simply say that they're just stone cold legalists who think that keeping law is going to save them. It's not quite that way. They really don't teach that. They really don't talk that way. Um, at least as far as the as I can understand the way they describe it. So hope that has helped out a little bit in understanding where we're at. We're going to pick up this reading uh, this this the second clause next week where we turn to. The man who does these things will live by them. The lift from Leviticus 18.5. We'll look at that next week. And also, we'll jump into the Hebrew of that a little more closely. If you can see my commentary, I've actually pulled the Hebrew into uh, the written commentary. But for now, let me just check uh, Skype, make sure all the students are there. Yep, everything looks good. I think what I'll do now is I'll close down the commentary. We went a little longer because it was so technical. And I'm sure many of you have questions. For those of you who aren't able to make the... Uh, teaching each week live. Uh, remember that these are recorded and uploaded to iTunes a few days afterwards, and you can catch it on the web, on my website, or you can reach me over at graftedin.com, my home congregational site, where I park the written notes there as well. Also, you're certainly welcome to drop me a line in care of either graftedin.com or in care of tatesaytorah.com. Shoot me a line and ask me uh, to explain it a little, uh, a little clearly, a little more clearly if you don't understand. Or if you're in the live class with me, as soon as we close, if you have just a few more questions, I'll entertain uh, questions and comments for about 10 minutes for the listeners, okay? Let's close in prayer, and uh, we'll meet again next week. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I thank you that uh, the words have been preserved for us, and I thank you that you are calling us up to a higher standard. Lord, we know that you have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken us. You promised that you'd never leave us nor forsake us. And so we know that your Holy Spirit is going with us. Your Ruach HaKodesh is, is giving us the understanding of the text. Even though it's not a perfect understanding, you have still given us the ability to know the meat of the text and the central uh, 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 meanings of the text so that we will not misunderstand. And more importantly, Lord, you are giving us the ability to walk in your ways. You have filled us with your goodness and your mercy, and you have caused us to walk in righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that this is our mandate. This is our covenant responsibility. 
And indeed, it is the light that shines forth as Yeshua shines through us. As people see us, may they see Messiah Yeshua. Let them not see Ariel, but let them see Jesus instead. Thank you, Father, for this uh, commission. Uh, thank you for your healing, and thank you that you're raising us up. Go with us this week and uh, continue to raise us up and bring us back together next week. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>